0: And we'll begin at verse 28. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had thus spoken, he went before us, sending up to Jerusalem. It came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethany, the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go you into the villages over against you, into which you're entering, ye shall find a colt tied. Yet, whereon yet never man sat, loose him, and bring him hither. If any man you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. They brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this day, thy these in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and encompass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and bought them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. This is what is commonly called or known as the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, of course, was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. Zechariah 9, 9, I believe it is, talks about him coming, riding upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Um, You know, most of the world's kings come riding on a horse. Speaking of a conqueror, a mighty conqueror. Uh, But, you know, this this riding on a colt, the foal of an ass, speaks of coming peaceably, but yet speaks of royalty. You remember when David... uh, had Solomon crying king, he said, "You know, let him ride on my own mule, not horse, but mule. Children of Israel weren't supposed to have horses anyway. But, but so this is what this is known as. But the title message I want, what I want to focus on this morning is this statement from verse 34, the Lord hath need of him. The Lord hath need of him.' And with that." Statement in mind, I asked a question, does the Lord have needs? Think about it. Let's pray and then we'll look at this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to meet together here. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, preserving it for us down through the age of time that we can study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman needs not to be ashamed, Rightly dividing the world of truth. So I pray you help me rightly divide thy truth this morning, and I pray that we'd make application to our lives for our good and thy glory. We do pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord hath need of him. And again, I ask, does the Lord have needs? Is there anything the Lord needs? Or we might say it this way is there anything the Lord desires? I want to notice three things this morning that the Lord hath need of, and it makes it it it, it, it uh, uh, speaks of you and I. First of all, uh, the Lord needs well, the Lord needs you and I to bear witness of the goodness and mercy of God. Notice in verses thirty-five through verse forty. It says, Then they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon, and as they went, they spread their clothes in the way. When he has come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples he answering said unto them i tell you that if these should hold their peace the stones would immediately cry out you see god has need or desires of us to bear witness of his goodness and of his mercy to bring praise and glory to him to be a witness to the nations if you will and we notice here that these they used they used, to bear witness of his goodness and mercy, they, they use their possessions. If you notice verses 35 and 36, it says, They cast their garments upon the colt. And in verse 37, it says, They spread their clothes in the way. So to, 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 pres- to make a, 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 a glorifying presentation of their Messiah, of their king, they use their possessions. And you and I, you and I are to use our possessions, the things we have, to bring glory and honor to the Lord. You know, there's an interesting statement in Acts chapter 32. You know, our liberals like to use this account in the book of Acts to to justify the redistribution of wealth. But it's not what this teaches. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart. And of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed, notice, was his own. But they had all things come up. So, so they didn't, the things that they had, they didn't consider their own, but they considered them the Lord's. And they realized that they were stewards of the things that they had. You know, this, this is a demonstration of, or of an act of stewardship to meet specific needs. It's not the redistribution of wealth. It's not what's going on here. They're not redistributing wealth of all the people and having all equal uh, uh, possessions. Uh, It was to meet specific needs at a specific time. Uh, And so uh, they used their possessions to bear witness to the glory of their king. And, and of course, the Bible tells us that we, you and I are, are to use our possessions. In First Timothy chapter six, first Timothy chapter six, in verse uh, 17 through 19, the Bible says, "Charge them are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly, notice, who giveth us richly, So God gives us these things, richly, all things to enjoy, that they do good. That they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So God gives us these things richly to enjoy, and we're to use them for His glory and for His honor. We're to use our positions. We are to give what we have. Now God doesn't ask that. You know, God's not unreasonable. God does not ask us to give what we don't have. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and and verse uh, uh, 12, 2 Corinthians 8, 12, when writing to the church at Corinth, Paul under inspiration says, For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. So God asks us to give according to what we have. Not what we don't have. So we are to give of what we have. We're to give bountifully of what we have. Chapter 9 verse 6 says. But this I say. He that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. So God does want us to give bountifully of what we have. Again not of what we don't have. But what of, of what we have. You know God doesn't want us to be stingy he wants us to be liberal givers this is one time you're allowed to be a liberal he wants us to be liberal givers you know when i when i plant in the garden if i want to harvest i plant liberally because uh, i want a good good reward of what i plant uh, and we are also to give cheerfully. Notice verse 7 says, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So we're to, be able to, we're to give it out of a, a heart of cheerfulness, uh, willingly, not begrudgingly. Oh, I have to give this to the Lord, you know. No, God wants us to give it Cheerfully or happily. And of course the example that, that he gives us is, is in chapter 8 verses 1 through 5 of the Macedonian brethren in, uh, where he says in verse, verse 2 how that in great trial affliction the abundance of their joy notice their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality for their power I bear record yea and beyond their power they were willing of themselves Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift, take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord unto us by the will of God. And so they gave, they gave joyfully, and they gave of what they had. And they they and they also gave it sacrificially. So so they used their possessions. These the disciples here used their possessions. To prepare the way of the Lord and to bring glory and to praise His name. To be a witness of, His, of, 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 of Him. Uh, and they, so they used their procession, but also they used their bodies. Notice, notice if you will, verses seven thirty seven through 40 of Luke 19, it says, And when He was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto them, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Uh, and he answered and said unto them, I tell you that these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. See, God desires and he needs you and I to use our not only our possessions, but to use our bodies. Particularly here, is of course, referring to their mouths. Their mouths. You know, the tongue, the Bible tells us the tongue is a very powerful instrument. A very powerful part of the body. The most powerful of the body. You know, we don't often think of the tongue as having the most power. But it does. You know, I, I've told my children... For years we're losing our we're losing our country not on the battlefield we're losing our country it's a war of words that's how we're losing it you know our universities in our universities our young people are be having in, in our public school system our young people be minds are being filled with mush with Garbage. With falsehoods. It's a war of words. It's a war of words. The tongue is a most powerful little vessel. Though it's little, it has great power. It has the power of life and death. And we're to use it to be a witness and testimony of the goodness and mercy of God. In Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, Romans 6 verse 11 says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it and its lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You know, the disciples of the Lord were crying out, saying, you know, Hosanna to the king, and so on. And, of course, the Pharisees said, you know, they need to tell these to be quiet. And he said, you know, if these hold the peace, the rocks are going to cry out. Well, God wasn't ordained to use rocks to bring praise and glory to his name. He's ordained that you and I do that. And we are to be instruments. You know, Search the New Testament and you'll find that when people got saved, it was a result of someone else giving them the gospel. We, people get saved through human instrumentality. Well, they might get saved reading a tract, but somebody laid it there or gave it to them. So there's a human agency always involved in the salvation of a soul. And God wants us to use our bodies. Romans 12.1 I beseech you, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. Reasonable service. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 What? Know ye not your body is temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For ye are bought with a With a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We saw in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, that the Macedonian believers first gave themselves to the Lord. They yielded themselves, their bodies, to the Lord. And then they gave of their possessions. Paul said in Galatians 2, 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Galatians six seventeen he said, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You know, I've heard it said that that person is wearing himself out for the Lord. That's what Paul did. That's not a bad thing. We are to give ourselves. Paul said this in Philippians 121. For me to live is. Christ. We live is Christ. See the Lord needs. He needs us. To yield our bodies. To his service. To take his message. A lost and dying world Thus, Secondly, so we're to bear witness of the goodness and mercy of God. Secondly, we're to bear witness of the time of visitation to come. Now, notice here in verses 41 of our text, 41 to 44. It says, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side. Shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not, knewest not, the time of thy visitation. Now, The word visitation means time of investigation or inspection. It speaks of a time of judgment. And the Lord here is very graphically, you might say, telling them that judgment is coming. The problem is they don't know it. So this is a warning. This is a warning of the coming judgment and destruction of Jerusalem. What Jerusalem means city of peace. There'll be no peace. You know, this, this city and the temple was the proudly prized possession of the Jews. But Jesus here predicted five specific aspects of the Roman attack upon Jerusalem. Uh, There'd be a building of an embankment, there'd be a surrounding of the city laying siege, the destruction of the city, the the killing of the city's inhabitants, and the complete leveling of the city. The historian Josephus described in detail the embankment around Jerusalem. and, And he described the the scene this way, this is, this is a quotation from Josephus, quote, All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows all swelled with a famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized him. For a time the dead were buried, but afterwards when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath. When Titus, on going his rounds along these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heaven called God to witness that, this was not his doing. Unquote. Spurgeon said this quote, "There is nothing in history to exceed this horror, but even this is nothing compared with the destruction of a soul. Unquote. You see. When God speaks of visitation, he's speaking of time of judgment, time of judgment. And we must warn people. It's up to us to warn people that there is a judgment coming. It is a terrible judgment. Go to Matthew chapter 25. So we think about this judgment. It is a terrible judgment. Matthew 25, verse 30. says, and cast ye... This is, we're just. I'm going to look at some verses here to describe what the destruction of a soul is or what it would be like. Verse 30, Matthew 25, 30. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. Mark chapter 8, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. And Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter in halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter in the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Where their worm dieth not, in the fire is not quenched. Go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. <clears throat> Luke chapter 16. Verse 23. It says, In hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. You just go ahead and shut that door, please. In hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Then go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Revelation 21, verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, there's a time of visitation coming. To those who know not the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. A time of everlasting torment. And you and I are to witness to the time of this visitation. The Lord Jesus testified at the time of visitation to come in the children of Israel because they knew not. We must warn the loss of this time and their need to prepare. But thirdly, we are also to witness against the false religion and its opposition to God. Notice verses 45, 48. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. See, the, the temple, the temple had been forsaken as a means of reconciliation to God, really, at this juncture in time. You know, it was designed to be a place where man could come and offer his sacrifices to God, which foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ, and thereby re- receive forgiveness by faith in the Lamb of God which was to come. That was the purpose of the temple. But well, it was no longer being used for that. In fact, it had become a place of Merchandise. You know, Isaiah, even the prophets prophesied of the purpose of the temple. Isaiah 56, 7 says this. Even them will I bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, For mine house shall be called a house of prayer. Notice these words. For all people. So, he's not just talking about the Jews. He's talking about all nations. So that also includes the Gentiles. And this, this is this statement of all, all people, that's is added or, or, or uh, mentioned also in the Gospel of Mark as a parallel passage to, to our text here. But so the purpose then of the temple was a means of people being reconciled to God. And all the temple Sacrifices were, to, were a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, it had been turned into a means of filthy lucre. Merchandise and control over people. So what did it had become? The merchants operated in the outer courts of the temple. The only area where the Gentiles could come and pray... And therefore, this place of prayer was made into a marketplace and a dishonest one. Barclay said this quote, A pair of doves cost as little as four pence outside the temple and as much as 75 pence inside the temple. Unquote. Now, get the, get, get the picture here. Here, here. Here's what would happen. You know, if you were to bring an offering, let's say you were going to bring turtle doves to offer it as a sacrifice. You the priest was to inspect the offering to make sure it was without blemish. That's fine. So you would, you know, you would bring your sacrifice, your turtle doves in, and they were never without fault. Or if you were traveling from a far place, you just come there and bought. You didn't bring. And that was okay. But they weren't to be. It wasn't to be a money-making scheme. And so what they were doing is they would take from them what theirs was, they say was not acceptable, and then they'd have to buy. They'd have to buy, if they were going to offer something, they had to buy there what was to be offered. And so, you know, let's say you paid four pence for it outside, and inside, you know, it wasn't no good according to the priest, so you had to buy theirs was 75 pence. 20 times. 20 times almost more expensive. Barclay goes on to say, quote, In that uproar of buying and selling and bargaining and auctioneering, prayer was impossible. Those who sought God's presence were being debarred from it from the very people of God's house. So the very people that were supposed to help you be reconciled to God were keeping you from God and putting stumbling blocks in your way. So the, the way of redemption think about it, What's really happening here? The way of redemption or salvation is being manipulated into a means of power boy, times haven't changed. You know, Jesus spoke very strongly against this kind of thing. Matthew 20, verses 25 to 27, Jesus said this, Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. You know, this kind of thing, the Lord hates. He hates it. In Revelation 2, we have this same teaching that was being practiced by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin in the temple being uh, spoken of here, and the Lord said, I hate it. It was creeping into the churches. Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Here's something God hates, and we hate them too. Look at verse 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, Nicolaitans... Is a word that's simply you. you it, it has it has a, uh, it's two words. Nikko means conqueror of. What does laity sound like? Laity. Laity. And what you have here creeping into the early churches is a a a a um, clergy. Exalting themselves above the laity. You know, in the early church, there was no sept terminology until this started. The pastor, of the bishops, was one of the people. Yes, it's an honor position, but he's one of them. But see, this—they began to elevate themselves, in certain. Pastors and, and and they were called bishops back then began to elevate themselves and then and, and began to exercise dominion over other churches as well and try and control areas. And this is where Catholicism came from. This is how it all came about. It. Augustine, that great church father, that wicked church father promoted this. He became, of course, he was made bishop of Hippo, uh, and he persecuted the churches of North Africa because they wouldn't submit, that wouldn't submit to his authority. God hates this. And this is what they were doing. But this is, this is the kind of thing that goes on today. You know, fast forward a little bit. 1,500 years, Johann Tetzel, you have selling indulgences during the reformation for a price you can buy your salvation of your soul and luther opposed him put his 95 theses to the wall of course this is this is this is the this is a common thread in all false religions catholicism controls the masses of people with its false doctrine and they teach, of course, that there is no salvation outside the church. Let me ask you something. Can the Baptist church give you salvation? Can the church save you? No, it can't save you. You know, a New Testament church has the message that will bring salvation to your soul if you'll receive it, but the church cannot save you. It has no power to save you or condemn you. But this is the kind of thing that's taught. Of course, Islam, all the false religions have of have, have these things. You know, the, the Southern Baptist Convention with a cooperative program, holds the purse strings of their missionaries. We the a lady used to come to church here, was a secretary. To the Southern Baptist Convention. One well, the offices here. And she didn't even go to church before she started coming here. So you can work there and you don't even have to go to church. But you know, we've got independent Baptists that exercise dominion where they ought not to. Easy believism makes people twofold more the child of hell than themselves. You know, we are not, we are not, we cannot, our, our command, and not, we cannot control the minds and hearts of people. We are just the messengers with a God-given message. But we, we are. As Jesus said, now, I want you to notice something here. I want to say something here. It says he, he went into it and he threw him out. And then it says he taught daily in the temple. In other words, he didn't address the issue every day. He did. You know, you can get on a hobby horse and spend all your time condemning other religions to your own demise. You know, we need to expose them and oppose them when needed. But that's not all we're to do. So we have to be careful about that. But but of course the Bible tells us that that Noah by building art, what did he do? He condemned the world. He condemned the world. Look with this in mind, go to, go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter four, verse two says, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. You know, again, we have to expose and oppose these false religions and and and, and uh, opposition to God, but we and but we have to preach the gospel and we have to deal with all long suffering and doctrine. Suffering long, without a and, and do it without being argumentative, or how do I say this? Without striving, look at chapter two, verse twenty-four. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. And the idea there is not being a a a a, uh, a fighter, or not fighter isn't the right word. We need to fight the good fight. A brawler. You know, a brawler is one that's always picking for a fight. I never heard this guy preach, but I've heard more than one person say of Jack Howes that you always need to be against something. You always need to have a cause, even if it's Pepsi-Cola. You know why? Because people will rally around the cause. So you always need to be against something. Well, I think that's the wrong philosophy. You know, we need to be against these things. We need to spend the, mo- the majority of our time preaching the gospel. Not just being against what's out there in the world. You know, I could come up here every Sunday and get a message about what's going on out there. How much would that help you in your walk with the Lord? That's a brawler. No, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing them that oppose themselves if God per venture, will give them repentance to the knowledge of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. So yes, the Lord does want us you know, to preach the truth. He needs us to, to, to be a witness of the goodness and mercy of God, to use our, our, our the things that we have, to be a witness and, and to warn people of the visitation to come, and to witness against the false religion uh, and, and its opposition to God and its control over the minds of men. So, the Lord has needs. Has need of you and I. If you and I don't tell them, who will? You know, we have been given the opportunity and the privilege to be a witness. We've been commissioned to take the message of the Lord to the lost and dying world. David Livingston said this, quote, If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Unquote. Yes, the Lord still has need. You know, Acts chapter 1 tells us of all the work that Jesus began to do and to teach. And he's left it for us to finish. To carry on. As we saw last week, to occupy in his business until he comes. So might God help us to realize that we are needed. Everybody likes to be needed. Everybody likes to have something to do. We are needed. God desires. He needs us to do his work. Might God help us to take the responsibility and avail ourselves of the privilege that he's given us to serve him and to be a witness for him.